Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 11, Brian Carey is being played. Darby had their binoculars trained on the prison for a half an hour before she caught sight of the truck. Now she felt uneasy as it coasted down the highway, soon joined by several motorcycle escorts. As it got closer and closer to the mountains, passing to the south, there was no sign of the MG. She looked at her watch, catching the truck as it passed over some open land near a large lake to the southeast. Hurriedly, she turned north again and finally saw the little red sports car about six miles away from her traveling at high speed. She alternated glances between the truck and Phillips, but finally kept her eyes on the truck as it turned left. Although she could not see any evidence of the road, she could see the side of the truck traveling eastward toward a row of evergreens in front of the lake. Phillips neared the hills as the truck disappeared from Darby's view, passing in back of the foliage. Phillips could now see the highest hill, but he could not see Darby as he turned onto a dusty road which ran along the southern edge of the hills. He pulled the MG up to the base of the largest hill along a row of scrub brush. Darby's rented car was on the other side of the scrub brush and he stopped next to it. Looking upward, he saw the car and yelled, Darby! Darby! However, the hill was still several hundred feet above ground and Darby was preoccupied. She had her field glasses set on another truck which had come out of the foliage minutes after the truck had arrived. It was a bright yellow tractor trailer truck and it rumbled down the dirt road toward Route 62. Along the side of its body were the words, Walsh, Moving and Storage, printed in bold red letters with black borders. Absent address was printed underneath, but she wasn't sure. Too small to be seen, even with the binoculars. When the truck finally reached Route 62, turn left, she took the binoculars from her eyes and scurried down the rocks as fast as she could. Phillips was about a quarter of the way up the trail when she came running down from the top. Darby, the pickup, it's, I know, I know, she cried as she ran up to him. Come on, Gary, let's get back to the car. Phillips reversed his direction as she ran ahead of him. He finally overtook her and hurried to the MG. As he waited for her, he waited for her to get in and then spun the tires in the dirt as he barreled back to the highway. Darby briefed him on what she had just seen and he told her what had happened inside the prison. The Walsh truck was not moving at a great speed. Doesn't this road hit the interstate again? asked Phillips as Darby retrieved the map from her pocket and looked at the next section. Well, Route 55 does, should be a few miles ahead, she said as the truck several yards ahead of them turned to the left and onto the new route. They're heading east, observed Phillips as he slowed, allowing the truck to move along the flat land. But where? she asked. Gary, we have to get closer so we can read the rest of that lettering on the side of the truck. We can't. I'm sure they're looking back here now. If we get closer, they'll see us. Plus, this land is flat. They will see us. There's a road that's more or less in line to this interstate. Not paved according to the map, said Darby, still looking down at the map. What do you think? Go down that road and get to the interstate ahead of the truck? You'll have to gun it. Well, what if they're not going back to the interstate? There aren't any more cutoffs until the interstate. If they don't show up, then we'll know what area they're in, right? Right. This land is open. Okay, here we go, he said as he turned right and turned right on the road. Darby watched the Walsh truck with the binoculars as the road got bumpier, and Phillips pushed the car, straining the shock absorbers over the dirt road. 
However, 15 minutes later, they arrived at the Cloverleaf to the interstate. Phillips turned back onto Route 55 and pulled into a gas station adjacent to the ramp leading to the superhighway. They filled the gas tank, and then he parked the car in the rear of the station, and they told the attendant they were just going to use the restrooms. Poised and ready, Darby picked up the truck and the binoculars, rumbling down the highway across the Texas prairie. Here it comes, she said. Slowly, the oversized truck came closer and roared by in the lower gear as it entered the ramp to the highway. The lettering on the side of the truck was clear but confusing. Walsh moving and storing, 1957 North Main Street, Titusville, Florida. We make moving a delight since 1927. We've got to call Carrie. Maybe he and Beetlehouse can make some sense out of this. Carrie was in his room at the Hilton. A security guard was stationed outside the door and another man was down the hill. Much to Carrie's dismay, Beetlehouse had called, convincing him to stay in the room for now. He had slept well until mid-morning and was getting out of the shower when the telephone rang. Throwing a towel around his waist, he ran to the next room, dripping wet, and answered the phone. Hello, this is Brian Carey. Brian, it's George. Yes, George. Are you in the plane? Yeah, I am, but I'm not on my way to Chicago. Answered Beetlehouse. What? I won't arrive in Chicago till after the game tonight. Why not? George, where the hell are you going? Something wrong? Now what happened? Brian, I'm flying to the Bahamas. I'm over the Atlantic right now. I'm meeting a man named Reginald McPherson. Who the hell is McPherson? Someone incognito? Pearson worked for Cognac five years ago. He's an associate of Jacqueline Barrows, whom I strongly suspect from the people I've talked to is the mysterious Jay. Great work, George. You're amazing. Listen closely if anything happens to me. George, I already talked to my contacts. There's men out in the parking lot who are watching over me right now. Nothing's going to happen. Brian, I don't know how to tell you this. These guys are playing you, Brian. What do you mean, George? What I'm saying is they have people on death row. They don't want their guys going to the electric chair. They're playing you. I don't believe it. Regardless, just keep that tucked in the back of your baseball cap. According to my sources, Jacqueline Barrows died in the Madrid Hotel fire five years ago, or so the official story goes. She must have worked for the CIA, said Kerry. I can't say that for sure, but everything about her cognitive work is missing. I think McPherson knows where it is. Jacqueline Barrows was a scientist, and I also know that and I also know that McPherson knows what happened to her after the fire. I was able to get McPherson on the phone and he's damn scared about this whole thing. He didn't want to say anything unless it was in person, so he instructed me to meet him this afternoon. Then Brian, he said he'd tell me everything he knows. He said he had something for me. George, I think uh, we're on the verge of cracking this thing. I'm sure we are, but we have to be careful, Brian. I can't stress this enough. If I were you, I'd get out to the park, take some extra practice, and relax. And furthermore, don't let those security men leave your side. And keep your own people back. George, I hardly got my head together. I don't even know if I can play tonight. You can't, you can't. Then go out to the ballpark. I think playing might relieve some of the tension in any event. I'll get to the ballpark after I leave Nassau. All right, George, I'll see you tonight. Goodbye. Goodbye. Carrie felt tremendously let down by his friends. He would tell them nothing and keep their security at all times.
The telephone rang a second time. Hello. Brian, it's Darby. Darby, I've been going crazy wondering about you two. What's going on down there? Don't worry, we're fine. Listen carefully. We've located a moving truck. Walsh. Walsh Moving and Storage, 1957 North Main Street, Titusville, Florida. We make moving and delight since 1927. She said. Well, where the hell is it now? Is that body in there? I don't know, but it's moving up the interstate, heading east. Darby, I just talked to Beetle House. Yeah? What did he say? He thinks that he's learned about Jay's identity, said Carrie. Really? Who is she? Possibly a scientist named Jacqueline Barrows who worked for Cogni. But she's supposed to have died in a fire five years ago. Sounds like she didn't. I don't know whether she did or she didn't. Beetlehouse is checking that out right now in the Bahamas. It's meeting with a guy named McPherson. McPherson was supposed to have worked with Barrows five years ago. This, we must be close to figuring out what's going on. That's what I told George. Look, I don't want to hold you up. You have to catch that truck. Call me when you find something. I'll be at the ballpark. Now get going and good luck. You too. She ran over to Phillips waiting in the MG. She jumped inside and he sped out of the station on the ramp as she told him what she had learned. It took about five minutes to come within sighting distance of the large yellow truck. And Phillips slowed in order to keep a safe distance from the truck. They began their chase not knowing where the massive truck would take them. In a musty flop house on the other side of Chicago from Brian Carey, a tall, heavy-set man with orange hair sat looking out a dirty window and smoked a stubby cigarette. The sound of the rapid transit shook the glass as the train crossed the tracks. It didn't seem to affect him. However, the dusty black telephone rang and he turned and took another drag on the cigarette. He dropped the cigarette to the floor and snuffed it out with his shoe. The telephone kept ringing and he stood and took his time walking across the room. Yeah. Tonight, Comiskey Park. First inning. Get him. Right. He said, hanging up the telephone. He walked over to the closet and opened the creaky wooden door. Reaching upward, he pulled down a short, thin wooden box from the top shelf and carried it over to the tatted sofa. As he opened the brass latches, he lifted a partially assembled rifle into his hands. He took out the rest of the rifle and a scope. Meticulously, he began to clean the weapons so it would be in perfect working order for eventual use later that evening. Join us next time for another episode of Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Word.